International Media Ministries presents dramatic scriptwriting with award-winning screenwriter and director Bart Gavigan. Lesson 10, Empathy and Emotions. There's a film called First Blood, Rambo First Blood. This is a film where the hero is a psychopath, basically. He's a trained psychopath. And indeed, by the end of the film, he's going to end up blowing up the whole town, <laughs> destroying the whole town, OK? Do you think you need to create empathy for such a character? Yes. Do you need to think, create lots of empathy for the, Yes, yes. You're right, you do. And so, uh, again, what I say to people is that I wish that we had, you know, like an ounce of what these people understand about film craft. Because in the first eight minutes of this film, they use 15, 16 major empathetic devices. They have to, so they use them, okay? And I, I won't tell you them all, but I'll take you through a little bit of the film, okay? The film begins with a man walking towards us down a lonely road. And the whole feel of it is uh, autumnal. The music is interesting. It's, the whole feeling is, is down home. It's, it's like coming home. It's immediately, there's a, just in this image, there's a, there's a feeling. Images are not neutral. And Europeans actually understand this in some ways better than Americans. The Europeans, in answer to your question about Europe and America, the Europeans actually uh, major on spectacle. They major on the image, the power of the image. Everyone does, but the Europeans, in a sense, particularly understand that. And, and they will major on that too, to the detriment of story, plot, or anything else. So they, they will do it to excess. You know, they'll, they'll just be thrilled if they get beautiful pickies. But not just beautiful pickies pictures that are emotional and powerful. So they, they understand this is important, and that's great, they do. Um, and then he comes to a homestead, a black homestead, and um, as I remember, the American flag's flying away, and it's, very, it's rural. And, and he discovers that his friend with him in Vietnam, whom he's come to visit, is, is killed, is dead. He died of cancer. Um, and so he's very nice to the family, very generous. He gives them photographs of the guy. Uh, there's no racism here at all. He's very, it's very good. And then um, we cut. And again, he's walking along, again on his own. Very atmospheric shot, very simple shot, where he's walking along a highway, big trucks going past. Lonely figure against the whole world. And then we cut to the sheriff of a small town who's getting ready for his day and saying hi to where everyone goes out. And they meet. And the sheriff picks him up and, and you have a little subtext, a little, little byplay where basically the sheriff says, not in my town. And as he's just come to get coffee and the sheriff says, no, you're, you're on your way. We don't like people like you coming through here. And he takes him to the bridge and drops him uh, the other side of the bridge, drives back over the bridge end of story, uh, except, of course, the guy walks back across the bridge. And already, what once happened is major empathy has been created here. So just him walking back across the bridge means, if, if the audience think, well, I wouldn't have done that, but this is courage. This is someone who 
just uh, this is a major empathetic device courage okay uh, the whole aloneness the whole way he's treated the family these are major empathetic devices these are saying to you you know this man this is a decent good human being this is a kind man this is a generous man this is a courageous man you're creating major here's a man of principle okay major empathetic device a man of principle remember integrity big big empathy word and then um, he's arrested and he's taken into the police station in, and he's uh, sort of in a low-key way brutalized at first and he resists and so on and um, he's brutalized some more and then we actually and then he's really badly brutalized it's the, these people treat him like dirt and and then um, we actually are put in a position a superior position as an audience of irony where we actually see that in his mind he's reliving being tortured in Vietnam so what he's experiencing in this police station is he's being tortured in Vietnam now we the audience know that but the people doing it don't know that this is a major empathetic device a very dangerous device it could backfire and seem real hokey but it's used very powerfully here in this circumstance okay and um, so then he breaks out and he's really good at what he does he just destroys the police station and destroys everyone in his path basically but doesn't kill them uh, and he gets away on a motorbike and of course he can ride that motorbike brilliantly and and what happens to a nice pacifist boy like myself is at the end of eight minutes I'm saying kill those policemen kill them kill them all because I've had 16 major empathetic devices used on me. Okay? Do you understand? And uh, that's exactly where the audience is. And that's exactly where the audience are going to be for the rest of the film. And it's a very interesting situation. So what you actually see is the power of craft to be used creatively, to be used to give life, or to actually manipulate uh, and to actually put the audience squarely where you want them along a, a moral route that's extremely dubious because what you're doing is a hero who in the end is a train killer and um, you want to trigger those buttons but you want him at the same time to have the audience rooting for him because he's the hero the moral of that story is if you know where the audience live if you know how to create empathy you are already about 80% home and dry in terms of um, succeeding. It doesn't mean you're going to be a great writer, but it does mean that your potential to actually interact with, a, with an audience is huge. Okay. A very useful um, addition to this in terms of empathy, but also in terms of, of character development, is to, when you're brainstorming about your character, to, in a sense, think what is his major, what is his seminal, what, whatever you want to call it, what is his prototype, what, what is his outstanding characteristic? What, what, if you look at this person and you have to sum him up in one word, uh, what will you say? It's a very important. By the way, in, in writing, uh, what's very useful uh, because you're actually dealing with, with visuals, you're dealing with emotion, you're dealing with structures and so on, it's, it's a very good thing to go through um, 
And when you're laboring, when, sorry, when you're labeling either the, the questions about your hero, his characteristics, his decisions, uh, anything like that, or, or on the other hand, whether you're going through your scenes and trying to label them, is it's a great discipline to have to label something in one word. It's a great discipline, for example, when you're looking at your hero's decisions to actually find one-word labels for all those. If you can do that, you're probably immeasurably on the route to being able to think really clearly structurally. Okay? So the, the discipline of labeling things. So major characteristic, okay? Tell me what would be a major characteristic of Dustin Hoffman and Kramer versus Kramer. Jogan. Good. High energy. That's good. Okay, if you push high energy a little bit and give it another name. Driven. Huh? Driven. Driven. Excellent. Driven. Okay, we'll stop there because the word, uh, these are all good. These are all it. And the word is obsessive. <laughs> uh, you know, he's got high energy, he's driven. Uh, he's obsessive. In other words, whether it's his work or whether it's his kid, he's going to go all the way. <laughs> So, you know, he's going to be the best at his work or he's going to be the best dad in the unit. You know, whichever it is, there's going to be no... Okay. That's a, that's a basically neutral um, in the sense of that can be used for good or ill. You know, if you're obsessive by nature, you can either control that, use that for good or ill. You know? Don't think I'm saying these are good films, you should watch them at all, but Rocky, the Rocky one... What's his overriding characteristic? About this one, there can be no question, okay? This one is not where there's two possibilities or three. This one's crystal clear. What's Rocky Balboa's overriding characteristic? Persistent. Very good, but uh, there's a deeper... These are the ones... And why I've said there can only be one contender here is because persistence, will to one, courage, all those will come up. But all those are factors. All those that are making what he was. But there's, there's one that runs right through the film, and I'm going to give it to you, because it's not the one you would immediately... Pretty close. Compassion. And oddly enough, this characteristic is more important than his will to win or his courage or anything. Okay? How does the film begin? What's he doing at the beginning of the film? Does anyone remember? Anyone seen this film? Almost. He's, uh, he comes to that. But what he's doing is out collecting a debt. Do you remember? And can he see it through? You've got to break someone's hand or something. Can he do that? No. no. He says, I can't do this. <laughs> okay. And then a bit later, you know, it's a cold night and he sees a prostitute on the street. And what does he do? He says, here, it's a cold night. Here's some money. Go home. Does Rocky Balboa hate his opponents? No, no, he thinks they're great. <laughs> okay. Um, the goldfish. I can't even remember. Was it the tortoise and the goldfish? I can't remember. Turtle? Turtle. Uh, what's, it, what's he do with the turtle and the goldfish? Yeah, what's he do, though? Do you remember what he does? Remember what he does? Picks one of them up and does what? Says, here. Here, I can... No, he picks him up and puts it next to the other one and says, here, you should talk to each other. You shouldn't be lonely. <laughs> by the way, what does he call his goldfish? This is a masterstroke, by the way, of writing. 
It's, it's probably the best thing in the film. What's he called his goldfish? What he calls his goldfish tells you he's witty, he's funny, he's a dreamer, and he's literate. So this guy goes, calls his goldfish Moby Dick. This is great writing, okay? Uh, the rest isn't great writing, but that's great writing. So in one word, in one name, he said four or five things about a character perfectly. These are helpful. These, these are ways of thinking. These are, these, are, these are focuses. When you're writing, you need to be really focused. You need to know what you're about. You need to know what your character's about. Okay, here's a big word. Emotions. You've got to understand what I'm talking about when I talk about emotions. I'm not talking about things that pass easily. And this word in film is the goal you aim for, to touch the audience emotion. In a sense, the biblical term, it's not just emotions, okay? It's, it's what they feel, but it's also their true heart, okay? You're trying to touch both the true heart, but also their feelings. The last thing you're trying to touch is this. This has no interest to you initially. In other words, do you want the audience to think? Of course you do. Do you aim for their head? Of course you don't. Uh, if you can move them, they will think. I have a friend who often says, I want to move the audience so much that they think. Okay? These are quite different goals. In other words, it's almost like you hit the target by not aiming at it. That old Zen thing. Um, emotions. This is the language, by the way, of actors. So if you're directing <laughs> and an actor comes up to you and says, what's this scene about? For goodness sake, be very careful if you tell him what it's about or her about. I mean, don't say it's about... Uh, he's basically saying to you, tell me what emotion I'm feeling in this scene. <laughs> so if you start to give him the whole patter of what the scene's about, what are we talking about here? An actor's language is the language of emotions, okay? And you as a writer must know this language because it's also the language of your audience. It's the arena in which your film is played out. This is not the arena here. Your head is not the arena of story. The arena of story is where the audience move, go on a journey, change, and ultimately have to think. But they have to think because they go on the journey and are moved, go through reversals, swing to right and left dynamically with the character, have ups and downs. They're moved, okay? And if you move them deeply enough, then you can change their life forever. It's the target, it's the power base, okay? And of course, uh, there's an umbilical cord between this and empathy. These two are never far apart in film.
a bit later maybe we'll look at mood in film, for example, and uh, the common thinking about this is mood is the, is the function of the director, the cinematographer, the person who writes the music. These are the people who dictate mood. And I'd say to you that you as a writer must just think, sure, they have a big role to play in mood, but I have the biggest role. You must always <laughs> say, I have the biggest role. And not because you're boasting, but because you do. The real key to it is this, is don't think of, of it in particular in terms of scenes, okay? Don't think of it as, this is a great emotional scene. Think of it more that the whole story carries the weight of emotion. Um, so, for example, when Patricia told her stories today, I, I always weep. I know those stories, but I always weep. Other people do too. Why is this? In, in other words, uh, why it is is because she first of all explains the context for the story. She doesn't just tell you what happened. She actually explains the context, lays the foundation, explains the backstory, and then brings you into the present and the encounter in the present. And suddenly you find yourself weeping. Okay. So the emotion doesn't just lie in some encounter. In the... That's because you're going after the heart, you're going after the emotion, do you see what I mean? You're going, but it's not because a scene is emotional, it's the whole thing is, the whole thing is, is heart, the whole thing is to do with moving people. The whole thing from the word go is a different way of, of thinking, do you know what I mean? It's like um, the scenes in Kramer versus Kramer towards the end get very moving, but they're only moving because from the beginning you've been structuring a story. So the, the emotion, oddly enough, true emotion comes out of the story structure. It doesn't come out of a brilliant scene. Uh, and indeed, when you're editing, you have to be very careful, because when you're editing, you actually often are editing, and you feel something doesn't work, and you say, every time I get to this place, it doesn't work. And, you, and your first instinct is to cut that scene out, or to, and you may be right, you may be wrong. But usually you're wrong. Usually it's actually scenes before that. It's like a cart going over cobblestones, it finally stops, but actually what stopped it is way back here. Do you know what I mean? It's like, so you have to, the story structure and emotion are tied together. It's, it's, it's a whole way of building. Uh, and the main thing is to know that what you're going after, what we're going after is the emotions, the feelings, the heart of the audience, not the head. And this is very difficult. It's not like a thesis. It's not like literature in, in, that, in the way we've been brought up to think about it. it it's actually, um, Thank you. It's, it's far different to that. And that's why I was saying melodrama, there's nothing wrong with melodrama, provided you can justify it, you know, and others provided you can root it down. Uh, because melodrama, like crazy, works on the heart. So if you can get opera in drama, do you know what I mean? The, if you can get the, the scope of opera in drama, and it be totally on the earth down, rooted down, well, you've got a big future ahead of you. But... Um, The thing is, you have no choice. In other words, uh, if you're not addressing, if you're not moving people, uh, and it comes from them being on the journey. It doesn't come, as I say, from the big scenes. It comes from bonding them to the hero, taking them through the reversals, and I'll, I'll show you those probably later today, about reversals, conflict, uh, um, how you deal with all those things. As you take them through that journey, they move, they feel. And, um, and the most key thing, which I'll finish on and then talk about it later, is 
is as the hero goes through the film, a, what they call technically the gap opens up. As he reaches towards what he wants and gets blocked, a gap opens up. So then he has to reach further and he gets blocked. Another gap opens up and then he goes around it and goes forward and you think, oh, well, he's trying. And then he, it gets blocked again. And what's happening is a gap gets opened up. And it looks like it's a dramatic gap, which it is. In other words, every time the hero is reversed, the film is turned. The f you, you, a great writer will turn a film 40 or 50 times. Every scene will turn a film. This is why it's an art form. This is why it's the great art form probably for centuries. You know, that to, I mean, to turn a film six times is no small feat. To turn it 40 or 50 times? And to each time open up a moral gap for the audience where the audience have been thinking, we know what you're about, and then suddenly they think, wait a minute, tell me where we are again? Where each time they have to keep going on this journey, learning new things about your worldview, about the hero's worldview, what's going on, having to make moral choices. Each time having to look down into the abyss, the moral abyss with the hero. This is a big deal. But this is what creates the emotion. It's not the big scene. Sure, sure the weeping takes place at the big scene, just as in Patricia's story. But it's the story structure, the whole way that's laid out, that uh, lays the foundation for us to, to actually do that. We'll talk a bit more about that because it's really, really important. In terms of the journey or in terms of um, story, I think you have to distinguish between two things. One is um, a, a sort of rule. In film, reality versus credibility. Okay, or believability. And in film, your interest is not in reality. Your interest is in believability, in credibility. This is very important. Um, and again, you're on very dangerous moral ground here. In film, the truth does not interest you. This is important. Okay, to understand, I'm talking about the rules now. What interests you is it believable. So if someone says, and I'll explain that. So if someone says to me, I might look at a script and say, well, I, I don't believe that. I don't think that's... And they say, it happened. I say, that doesn't interest me. All that interests me is, do I believe it? So the fact it happens is meaningless. The fact it's true is meaningless. All that counts for film is, do the audience believe it? Is it credible? Okay. And where this leads you, and, and what you have to deal with, okay, is you have to think long and hard about whether you want to make a documentary about a subject or make a drama. Because, say you're doing a biography of, of someone, well, the one thing you must know from the beginning is, is that life does not fit into the dramatic patterns you want to have in film, just does not. It's, even when it's very strong life and there are wonderful climaxes, reversals, challenge and so on, even so, it still won't suit film. And, um, it's a moral dilemma. The very most you can do in a biography is to be true to the spirit of the life. It's exactly like a novel. The most you can do is be true to the spirit of the novel. If you think you're going to adapt the novel faithfully, forget it. You're, you're, you know, you're just not. It, it's not going to... Like, for example, most of um, the main plots on the novel line are going to be on the inner line. They're going to be... And, and when you actually make them into film you're going to make all the main plots of the novel probably subplots in the film because that's the inner line, that'd be a good subplot in film. And probably a subplot in the novel, you're going to make the main plot 
because that's going to be the exterior line. And the main plot in the classic drama is always on the exterior line. It has to be a visible one. It has to, the more concrete, the better. Okay. So it's a very dangerous area, and, and you actually have to understand what you're dealing with and, and the nature of, of, of each. If you make a film like Rain Man, you're not going to make the society or the doctors who deal with autistic savants happy. Okay? Because what you're dealing with is a film whereby to make this film work, you have to have growth in the character. So the specialist will say to you, that could never happen in this way to this autistic savant. The, the, the growth that is described in Rain Man just will not happen where you have a character make a joke or where you have a character... It's not huge growth, but he makes enough of growth to actually be a fruit of relationship with his brother. And that's absolutely necessary for the film. So you're never going to make the specialist happy, okay? Uh, but does that mean you shouldn't make the film? I, I would say no. I, I, I would say that you'll never make any films if you're going to have to make all the specialists happy. So it's actually to do with believability versus reality. And in Rain Man, I would say they made an excellent choice in terms of story. Uh, so story, at that point, um, you know, has edges around it. If every time I'm asked to do a biography of someone in film, it's, a, it's almost like a moral crisis of conscience. Because I know the, with a historical figure, the best I can do is be true to the spirit of that figure, you know. And it, I don't feel very happy about it. In other words, it's not, it's, not where, it's not what I like drama to be. It's not... Um, I don't feel the freedom I do in front of a blank page and just write a drama. So it's a, it's a, it's a major, major choice. When you actually come to biography, I think you're in a much more queasy area. And certainly, if, if um, in making a film, it's, it's absolutely important for you that the details of this life and so on are kept as they are, then you must just um, do a documentary. No question about it. Uh, otherwise, it's going to end in tears for you and everyone else. You know, I'm doing a film at the moment on um, Livingston, and it's out there. It's been looked at by Liam Neeson and uh, Anthony Hopkins at the moment, and so on. And a lot of big players are involved. And it was an agony because uh, Livingston is such a strange life. I mean, it's such a heroic life and such a total mess. I mean, here's a man who totally neglects his family and yet in many ways in terms of calling and so on is a great figure. And so when you do this kind of film, you have to be honest, you know. You, you, uh, you have to actually deal with these things truthfully. And just holding them all together in a film is just technically is no easy pattern. And and one of the reasons why Livingston's life has, has destroyed many lives, in others because, uh, I mean, many writers' lives. So in the last 20 years, four or five people have tried to write scripts of Livingston, gone bankrupt or whatever, because just technically to do this, to actually structure this particular life is, is very, easy, uh, very difficult. On the one hand, it's like a road movie with uh, ox wagons, you know. And then on the other hand, it's an incredible divided person who... How do you create empathy in the audience for this person? So, I won't tell you how we did it, but uh, it creates a moral dilemma. You know, it's how you deal with history, it creates a moral dilemma. Because you have to take responsibility for the fact that your film is going to be history. 
But, um, yeah, people, I think, will react to your films also as saying, oh, this comes from a, a Christian point of view or this comes from a, a certain point of view. Um, but they'll only do that if they've gone outside the film. And part of your task is to never, do you remember you grab them by the throat and no one gets out of the film. That's your great task. And, and you will sacrifice anything, uh, technically, at the level of craft. Uh, if there's any choice at all that people will have questions, anything that gets them out of the film, you won't allow it. You will sacrifice your best scenes, you will sacrifice beauty, you will sacrifice anything to the drive of your film so that people um, can't get out of the film. And then what happens is they experience life. Instead of actually saying, is this Christian, is this not? They just experience this as life, which is it's, it's precisely what it is. And if it isn't, you shouldn't be making it. In other words, if it's not uh, your vision of life and what life is, then don't make it. But that's, if you're honest about that and if you have integrity about that, that's exactly how people will experience it. Before I move on, since it's to do with reality and uh, credibility, is the word metaphor. Keep remembering film is a metaphor. Keep remembering that your dialogue, your drama, is life distilled. It's not life, it's a distillation of life. Okay. So it, it's distilled to give the appearance of reality, but it's not reality. Okay. And so everything's metaphor.